Good morning. Good to be with you this morning. We are jumping back into our sermon series in the book of Proverbs after we took a one-week unplanned detour from the book as I was out last week under the weather. Very grateful for Bill Bear being willing to step in on short notice and preach the word for us. But this morning we are back in Proverbs and we will be in Proverbs chapter 5. When I took driver's ed in high school, my instructor, like most driver's ed instructors, sought to instill in us a healthy fear of driving. And he did so by warning us of the danger of driving in unsafe ways. He told us about the consequences of speeding, driving recklessly, and he even showed us the pictures, the awful pictures of car wrecks. He said, you know, if you drive too fast and don't follow the rules of the road, you will end up like this. In essence, my instructor was saying, listen to me. Listen. I know a thing or two about driving and the consequences of driving unsafe. That I'm telling you, drive safe. Follow the rules of the road. If you don't, there will be consequences and they will look like this. And then one day, at the end of one of our classes, which took place at my high school before high school classes began, a kid from my school came in and sat in the back. He had already taken the class with the same instructor. He had already gotten his license, and he was sitting in the back to say hi to the instructor, check in. My instructor said, hey, how you doing? He said, good. I rolled my van. And he had rolled his van because he was speeding because he was driving unsafe. Thankfully, no one was seriously injured, but his van was totaled. He got a reckless driving ticket. Insurance rates went up, and I looked at my instructor who kind of just shrugged his shoulders and smiled and just kind of said, okay, what could he do at that point? He told him. He warned him. My friend did not listen, and he suffered the consequences. Well, we are continuing our sermon series going through Proverbs, and this morning we are in chapter 5. And one of the things we must understand as we study the book of Proverbs is that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And when we rightly fear the Lord, we will turn away from sin and walk in righteousness. Righteousness is inextricably linked to wisdom because the wise person fears the Lord and thus understands the seriousness of the offense of sin against a holy God. We see this in our passage this morning. We are given a warning about a particular sin, namely adultery, and told the consequences of giving into this sin. We are also shown the better way, the way of wisdom, the way of righteousness. We are encouraged to go the way of righteousness as we are reminded that the Lord is watching. Before I read chapter 5, I'll give you a brief outline of what we see in the chapter. In verses 1 and 2, we have another call to listen. In verses 3 through 6, we are given a warning In verses 7 through 14, we are given a command and told of the consequences for disobeying the command. In verses 15 through 20, we are shown the better way, the way of wisdom, the way of righteousness. And in verses 21 through 23, we are reminded 
to fear the Lord. So I'm going to read chapter 5, and I encourage you to follow along. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless, lest strangers take their fill of your strength, and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline, and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for a lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. In verses 1 and 2, the author reiterated one of the major themes from chapters 1 through 9 when he called on the son to be attentive to wisdom and incline his ear to understanding. In the first few chapters, we see these commands repeated in several ways. Proverbs 2.2 says, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Proverbs 4.1 says, be attentive that you may gain insight. Proverbs 4.20 says, be attentive to my words, incline your ear to my sayings. We are re exhorted repeatedly to listen and pay attention to the one imparting wisdom. Again, imagine the instructor in front of the student saying, listen to me. Pay attention to what I'm saying. I am warning you. I am telling you of the consequences if you don't listen. In these commands, we are called to an active and intentional listening to gain wisdom and understanding. Brothers and sisters, how are you actively and intentionally paying attention to the Lord's wisdom and seeking to understand his word? The book of Proverbs provides a high concentration of wisdom from the Lord, giving our attention 
to the wisdom of Proverbs is a great place to start. At the same time, we need to understand that we find wisdom, understanding, insight, and knowledge in all Scripture. In 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17, we read, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Proverbs has much to say about teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. But we also see that all Scripture is useful to these ends. Therefore, an important way we pay attention, that we incline our ear to understanding, that we get wisdom, is by reading the Word. If you are going to heed the exhortations, the repeated and emphatic exhortations of Proverbs, then you must read God's Word. If you don't take time to read God's Word, then you are ignoring and disregarding the exhortations of Proverbs. There is no two ways about it. You are either paying attention and inclining your ear to the Lord's wisdom in His Word, or you are neglecting it to your own detriment. But we not only read the Word, we also think about and reflect on the Word. We want to be people who read the Word and consider what is the Lord revealing through His Word? What is He revealing about Himself? What is He revealing about the world? What is He revealing about my own sinful heart. We want to think on these things, reflect on these things, meditating on the word, seeking to humbly apply it to our hearts and to our lives. We don't want to be people who read the word, close it, and then quickly forget what we have read. Similarly, we don't want to be people who show up on Sunday, the gathering, hear the word preach, and then quickly forget what was preached as we Go on with our lives. No, we want to be people who think on the word, reflect on the word, meditate on the word, and humbly apply the word to our own hearts and lives. We have more access to God's word than any generation in the history of humanity. Time is not the issue because we always give time to what is most important to us. Brothers and sisters, we need to pay attention. We need to incline our ears. We need to get wisdom. And we do so by listening to the one who gives wisdom, and that is the Lord. And he gives us his wisdom in his word. In verses 3 through 6, Solomon warns the son about the forbidden woman who is portrayed as a seductress. He said her lips drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil, meaning her words 
ooze seductive charm. She engages with flirtatious and flattering words. I want to take a moment to say that some may feel as though this passage is slanted against women. Why is the one doing the tempting a woman? If we look at some of these texts in isolation, we might be tempted to think that the Bible portrays women as seductresses and men just have to resist their temptations, which of course we know is not true. Nevertheless, this is the example the author chose, and it is a valid example. But of course, it does not mean that the women are the only ones who tempt others to sexual sin. I was reading this past week in 1 Samuel, where the sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, used their position as priests to lay with women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The act, their actions were described as evil. And the Bible referred to them as worthless men whom the Lord eventually put to death. The Bible is forthright about the reality that men and women tempt others to sin, and men and women tempt others to sin sexually. So Proverbs 5 speaks to the example of the forbidden woman who is a seductress, not because the author is picking on women, but because he is warning the son whom he is addressing about a particular temptation, which sadly is a reality, namely a married woman tempting a man to commit adultery with her. These verses are not an indictment of women, but they are an indictment of the ungodly and wicked. In this case, the forbidden woman's words sound so good and enticing, but the son is not to be deceived into believing a lie about the path being offered. Rather than being charmed, he is to see through the flirtatious and flattering words. What might seem sweet will be bitter in the end. What might seem pleasurable will lead to death. What we see in this warning is the broader principle that sin, though appealing, is deceptive. We can be deceived into thinking a certain sin will somehow bring us more pleasure, delight, satisfaction, joy than doing the will of God. Consider the temptation of Christ. Surely Jesus faced temptation throughout the entirety of his life, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke record a particular period of temptation when Jesus was fasting for 40 days. The devil appeared to him and appealed to his human needs for food, reassurance, and success. He offered him food when he was hungry and a path to glory that did not require suffering. You can see how appealing this might have sounded to Jesus. To make matters more difficult, Satan quoted scripture to justify Jesus committing sin. He was twisting God's word. He was saying, here, pursue this thing. Do this thing. After all, doesn't God's word say Oh, do you see the danger for us? Do you see it's, how it's possible that we can justify sin even by using God's word? After all, doesn't God want us to, to be happy? Doesn't he want us to be, to be satisfied? Doesn't he want me to have this thing? Doesn't he want me to pursue this goal? Doesn't his word say Sin is deceiving, and if we are not careful, we can even use God's word to justify committing a sin. 
brothers and sisters, we need wisdom and understanding to see through the deceptive nature of sin. We need wisdom to see through the the honey and, and the oil to the bitterness and death. We are all susceptible to being blinded to the reality of sin by the appealing nature of any given temptation. Temptation comes when sin is presented in an appealing way. We also need to understand that sin appeals to desires within. James 1, 14 and 15 says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. We may be tempted to sin by an external source, but that external source is appealing to a desire within. We cannot blame the external source for our own sin because if we had no corresponding desire, then we would not be tempted. So we need wisdom to see through the appealing nature of sin, and we need wisdom to see how our own desires may blind us to the reality of sin. Brothers and sisters, we all need to take this warning seriously. I think of the words in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, which says, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed, lest he fall. We do not want to put confidence in ourselves. We do not want to think more highly of ourselves than we ought When we put confidence in ourselves to resist sin and temptation, we are one step away from falling. Every single one of us needs to take heed. Every single one of us needs to consider the words of warning. In verses 3 through 6, we are given a warning. The warning concerns the forbidden woman. But the warning is indicative of a bigger problem. Therefore, we would all do well to take heed of the deceptive nature of sin and temptation. In verses 7 through 14, we are given a command and told of the consequences of disobeying the command. After exhorting the son once again to listen, the father instructs the son to keep his way far from her and not go near the door of her house. If you know she is ungodly and seeks to entice you, then stay away. See, I'm not, I'm telling you, don't just not enter her door. I'm saying, don't even go down that street. Keep far away. Don't go near. Don't give in to the temptation to commit adultery. I also think we see another principle here that applies beyond this particular example. The principle is, don't give in to sin Rather, steer clear from temptation. We never want to put ourselves in a place of compromise. We don't want to flirt with temptation. We don't want to get close. Instead, we read in 1 Corinthians 6.18, flee from sexual immorality. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness. The right response to temptation is not passivity or indifference, but fleeing and keeping far away. 
In verses 9 through 14, the father paints a picture for the son of what happens to the man who fails to heed his command and gives in, committing the sin of adultery. The consequences for the man who gives in and commits adultery are disastrous. He loses honor. He loses strength. He experiences financial loss. And at the end of his life, he is full of regret. He says, I am at the brink of utter ruin. The father is saying, here are the consequences. Listen to me. I'm telling you. If you go down that path, this is how it will end for you. The consequences of his sin are not only eternal, but he also experiences them in this life. We also need to see that in the case of the young man who commits adultery and then comes to his senses, whom does he blame? He blames himself. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame his parents. He doesn't blame his wife. He doesn't even blame the forbidden woman. He says, I hated discipline. I despised reproof. I did not listen to my teachers, and I did not incline my ear to my instructors. He recognizes his failure in committing the sin. He had the opportunity to listen. He had the opportunity to heed the words of wisdom. He had the opportunity to go down the righteous path. But instead, he chose sin. And he suffered the consequences. I've heard it said that sin takes you further than you want to go. Keeps you longer than you want to stay. And costs you more than you want to pay. I think Proverbs 5 paints that picture. After the warning, the command, and the consequences for disobeying the command... We are shown the way of wisdom regarding sexuality. And there's no getting around the fact that the way of wisdom regarding sexuality is a little bit spicy. And it is God's word. The part of this, this chapter begins with a series of water metaphors. The son is told, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed. When you come across these water images, you might wonder, to what is he referring? You have an idea because the metaphors immediately follow a warning against committing adultery. But maybe you wonder if he is switching gears or changing subjects. But he's not. He is providing the positive command on this subject after delivering the negative command. The negative command is don't commit adultery. Keep away from the forbidden woman. The positive command is to drink water from your own well. In other words, Solomon tells his son that the better way, the way of wisdom when it comes to sexuality is to enjoy sexual intimacy with his wife. Ray Ortland writes, the metaphor is water to satisfy a raging thirst the Bible is talking about a man's sexual desires, and God is saying, satisfy your thirst through lovemaking with your wife. We are reminded that God is the wonderful creator of marriage and sex. In Scripture, we see that God designed marriage 
as the covenanted sexual union of one man and one woman. Now, of course, we live in a time when it is not popular to say that. It is not popular to affirm the truth of God's word, that God created man as male and female, and he created marriage as the union of one man and one woman. Sometimes people who hold fast to these truths are called bigots, as though we hate people who believe or live differently. But we don't hold fast to these things because of any hate or animus toward any person. We hold fast to the truth of God's word because God's word and God's ways and God's commands are good. They are good and they are right. And so we must hold fast to the truth about marriage. We must hold fast to the truth about gender and sexuality. We must hold fast to the truth about sex. We need to affirm what God's word affirms. As followers of Jesus, we must agree with and affirm that which Jesus said and affirmed. Jesus affirmed this understanding of marriage when he was asked about the permissibility of divorce in Matthew 19. He responded, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus' teaching, his conviction regarding marriage was rooted in creation. God created man as male and female so that the male and female could come together in the covenant of marriage and enjoy the one flesh union that was meant to be permanent. And so we see Jesus affirm this understanding of marriage and gender and sexuality. Therefore, sex is to be enjoyed within the boundary of marriage. We see this here in Proverbs 5. Pursuing sex outside of marriage is disastrous. Pursuing sex within marriage is joyous. In verses 18 through 19, Solomon says, Rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Husbands, we need to understand this positive command and recognize that which is contrary to this command. When we are rude to our wives, impatient with our wives, condescending toward our wives, or act annoyed with our wives, then we are doing the opposite of rejoicing in our wives. Instead, rejoice in your wife, delight in your wife, cherish your wife, and take pleasure in your wife. In verse 19, Solomon pushed the exhortation to rejoice in your wife further. He said, let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. We have seen that God has established marriage as the boundary to enjoy the sexual union. In verse 19, we see that within that boundary, there is freedom. Solomon used strong language to encourage the son to delight in his wife's body and be intoxicated in her love. As one commentator said, inhibitions are to be left behind in the marriage bed. 
Verse 19 reminds us of what we read in the Song of Solomon, where the husband and wife delight in one another and in each other's bodies. The Bible celebrates sexual delight within the boundary of marriage. One thing we need to be clear on is that a husband demanding that his wife meet his needs is not the picture we see in verses 18 through 19. In Scripture, we see that a husband and wife are both called to selflessly give themselves to the other in the marriage bed. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5 says, The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I appreciate what Denny Burke said about this passage where he wrote, The issue is not that you owe me, but that I owe you. The text is not about coercing one's spouse to do what he or she does not want to do. It's about a husband and wife giving themselves freely to one another. It's not about insisting on one's autonomy and authority without being a servant to one's spouse. The biblical ideal for the marriage bed is a husband and wife fully enjoying and delighting in one another as the husband is focused on serving his wife and the wife her husband. When a husband and wife rightly pursue the biblical ideal for the marriage bed, it serves as a safeguard against sexual sin. Considering the joy and bliss of marital love, Solomon asks, why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Forsaking the joy of the love of his wife for an adulteress is an absurd and incredulous idea. But what does this teach of the for those of us who are not married. Again, I think we, what we see points to a greater biblical principle. There is joy in turning away from sin and doing things God's way. There is joy, there is delight, there is pleasure in obeying the will of God. In Psalm chapter 40, verse 8, we read, I delight to do your will. Oh my God, your law is within my heart. So brothers and sisters, we need to say, that we need to see that there is, there is joy, there is delight, there is pleasure in saying no to sin and temptation and joyfully walking in obedience to the Lord. This is true for all of us. Well, if the positive commands weren't enough to deter the son from the forbidden woman, in verses 21 through 23, he provided a sober reminder. He said, For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. What is the greatest reason to keep away from sin and temptation and go the way of wisdom and righteousness? Fear of the Lord. The Lord knows. The Lord sees. Nothing is hidden from his sight. He sees what we do, even what we do in secret. Therefore, fear the Lord. Turn away from sin. 
the iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. While sin may seem appealing at times, the reality is that it entangles us, ensnares us, brings us down, leads us astray, and ultimately destroys us. We are called to walk in the way of wisdom and in the path of righteousness. But we don't put our hope in our ability to do so. The reality is we have all given in to temptation. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We are all guilty. We put our hope not in ourselves, but in the one who was tempted and did not sin. In Hebrews 4.15 we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Jesus was the only one who perfectly resisted all sin and temptation. He's the only one who perfectly obeyed the will of God. He resisted sin and obeyed God's will for our sake. He did so for us because we have all sinned and we have sinned sexually. We are guilty and we are in the need of, we're in the need of the forgiveness of our sins. And the good news is that God sent Jesus into the world to save sinners such as us. Jesus lived a life without sin, perfectly obeying the will of God. And he went to the cross to take the punishment for our sin in our place as our substitute, even though he was without guilt. Jesus died as a sacrifice in our place to take the punishment of our sins so that we can receive the forgiveness of our sins. Jesus died upon the cross Three days later, he rose from the grave, conquering death. He appeared to many before he ascended into heaven, where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again to judge the living and the dead. Our hope on the day of judgment is not in our ability to obey God, but our hope for the day of judgment is the perfect, righteous life of Christ. We trust in Christ, and because we trust in Christ, we receive the forgiveness of our sin and his righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, we read, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we urge you to repent of your sin, believe in Christ, be saved. You are in need of a Savior just like the rest of us. And Christ is a mighty Savior. Believe in Christ. Be saved. For those of us who have trusted in Christ, remember your salvation. Remember that because you have trusted in Christ, you have been made righteous. You are not righteous because of your own life, but you are righteous because of Christ's righteousness, which has been imputed to you. You have been made righteous in Christ. And because we have been made righteous in Christ, we are called to walk in the path of wisdom. We are called to walk in righteousness. May it be so. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is a precious gift. We pray that we will be those who pay attention, who incline our ears, who get wisdom by reading and studying and meditating on your word. We pray, Lord, that we would heed your warnings and obey your commands. We pray that you would grant it to us to resist and to flee from all temptation and sin and walk in the path of righteousness that you might be glorified in us. We thank you for Jesus who came to save us from all of our sin and give us credit for his righteous life. We pray that as those who have been made righteous, we will walk in righteousness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.